This is episode 171, entitled, If You Can't Stand the Heat, and you can fill in the blanks. I've been thinking a lot about the question that was raised um, for me uh, in words, uh, very, um, uh, in a way that touched my own experience in a a lecture that Gerald Hurd gave long ago called Is Mysticism Escapism? And this essay by Gerald Hurd, which came out of a talk he gave right before the beginning of the Second World War, was an attempt to uh, look at the question of do we do well to stay out of the kitchen when the heat is too strong or do we do well to do our best to roll up our sleeves and stay in the kitchen with hopes of somehow bettering the conditions of the kitchen and heard in a way that is really quite um, dissident with uh, a great deal of what I've uh, known over the years and in a way which seems at first to be kind of a mammoth cop-out although it is the view that I now believe is accurate to the facts. He says this, he says, the tremendous word mysticism cannot be defined until we have settled with a smaller but perhaps vaguer word, escapism. Mysticism is a very old word, while escapism one judges very new. But the verb to escape is clear enough. It means to leave a position which has become impossible. Heard went on to talk about the famous St. Benedict who escaped from the world and in the escape or through the escape or as a consequence of escape was given a powerful blueprint for society itself which uh, became what was called the rule of St. Benedict but ended up being a a way of um, working and achieving good in the culture in which he was living that was highly contributory to the common good, although it it was entirely birthed in an act of escape. Well, I don't know if uh, my own understanding of escape issues in uh, fructifying contributoriness, contributions, um, I would like to believe it does. It hasn't so far, it seems to me, but the what he says about Escapism simply comes from the word escape, which means getting out of a situation which has become impossible. Impossible. And I find that um, the, uh, uh, as I survey the environment in which my own mind uh, is drawn to various situations, circumstances, and facts around me, I no longer believe that the answer is engagement. I've said this before, but it's been very much in my mind because I've been talking to some old friends of late here and there, and one in particular, a man of tremendous admired um, continuing goodness and uh, tremendous fruitfulness in his own uh, academic profession and legal practical profession in which he's older than I am, and he's still writing books and organizing institutes and uh, making a very um, specific, concrete, and palpable contribution to an area of law which can only benefit this world and this country. And um, as I talked to him, it became clear to me that he was still, for whatever reasons, whether they be genetic or um, ideological, is able to be more committed to his present on its own terms than I am, while also being quite detached. He was a, quite a marvel, but I couldn't go with him all the way because I, that's just not, not my experience that um, 
putting your shoulder to the wheel really results in much lasting good. I, I wish I didn't say that. L let me say how this cashes out. I find that if I, there are several things that um, weigh on me, and uh, I find that when I engage them, um, think about them, write about them, or hear news about them, or read about them, rather than that being a positive, uh, I, I, I can do nothing about them, and I become very despondent. And in fact, uh, the necessity in my own inner experience of these various things calls me to opt out of the question. Now, you'll say, what if everybody did that? Well, I think if everybody did it, we probably would have a far less polarized and attached world of engagement of dissident uh, ideas that result only in tremendous conflict and losers. I'll give you some examples. Whenever I think about the question of illegal immigration, I, I get crazy. Uh, on the one hand, I see both the right and I see the left. I see the... Um, I see uh, hypocrisy um, and uh, manipulation and opportunism on one side, but I also see need and uh, my heart goes out to people and I have uh, a tenderness uh, to uh, so many who vie for um, what this country offers, especially in a false way, in my way of thinking, material advantage, but it is exists in the mind at least and to some extent in, in reality. But when I see all the different, um, the imbroglio about it and the impossibility of getting anywhere about it except by arbitrary action by one group or another, the absolute irreconcilableness of the problem in this country and the way it, um, both sides, it seems to me, have something to say, and both sides strike me as wrong, and nothing is happening, albeit there may be an executive action, but that will then create a different response. I find that my best solution is to opt out. Now you'll say, well, how can you opt out? Well, I, I have to, because um, it, it, uh, a situation like this, there's no end to the human, it's an impossible situation. As, as it certainly is on the ground, if, you, if you're aware, if you watch, if you read. Another one would be the Israel-Gaza conflict. Uh, I know there are two sides of that story, and um, I've lived in Israel, and uh, I read the American media, but I also read Haaretz, and I like Gideon Levy, and I read The Guardian, but I also am aware of, uh, from a million different sources, for example, a story I've been I've been uh, uh, reading of Erwin um, S. Cobb involving a poor Jewish peddler in uh, 1861 who is the recipient of an extraordinary act of kindness in context by a Gentile beautiful woman, an extraordinary act of kindness in 1861 Kentucky to this wandering Jewish peddler from the old country. And the response of love and deep gratitude and profound loyalty that uh, comes back to this woman who later on fades and her beauty uh, and her riches and all the, her coolness all goes to naught and the loyalty of the man as he ends up becoming very successful uh, in a town, Paducah, Kentucky. And you read the story and you could never in a million years uh, be uh, an, an anti-Semitic person uh, in relationship to the uh, profound unification, loving vision of Mr. Felsberg in uh, Irvin S. Cobb, and that's, of course, from left field. But if you ever get involved in that particular question, say the Gaza conflict, one way or the other, you're, you're absolutely horse meat. You, you can't get anywhere because it's polarized to, the, to, to such a high degree 
that you, if you actually wade into it, you'll, there's no end to it, um, as I see it. Uh, although I see right and wrong on both sides. And therefore, for me personally, it becomes, I go, I get crazy at a certain level. And what can I do? Uh, except stay with uh, Erwin S. Cobb's story and um, opt out. But I'll give you some other examples. The church and the conflicts in the church. I was reading the sermon preached by a very high-profile Episcopal bishop recently um, at an anniversary of an event that took place 40 years ago uh, that was of great significance in the modern history of the Episcopal Church, and some abhorred it and still do, and some saw it as the greatest thing that had ever happened. But what was so striking by this sermon that I was reading by a very highly placed person was that the sermon was an extreme statement. That is to say, the sermon, traditionally the role of a bishop is to um, keep the church together. There are stories about this. George Carey used to tell a famous story about a Swiss conductor who, on the, as the little tiny train up to Grindelwald in the Swiss Alps, was going so slowly, and uh, the conductor was walking up and down, or the ticket taker was walking up and down the aisle collecting the tickets, walking, and, and um, <laughs> the... Uh, um, fellow said to him, um, can't you go any faster, referring to the train? And, and the, the, the conductor said, well, I could, but you see, I've got to keep up with the train. <laughs> well, I mean, um, institutionally, uh, that's really what traditionally a bishop was. I was certainly grew up thinking that a bishop was to be a symbol of unity. He or she now might have an idea or a position or a sense of where things ought to go, but he or she had to primarily remember that he was a symbol of unity. The bishop was a symbol of unity. But this sermon that I heard was so much a, a, an advocacy, so much a, a work of advocacy without any um, uh, crumbs to the traditional opposition, which let us say it used to be 22, 23% of the church, maybe a little bit more, but not much more. That, But there was no desire to even kind of th- throw a little bit of something as a concession to those who long ago, at least, would have been very put out. And Undone, sort of like in First Corinthians, by the food to idols. You know the Pauline thing is, you know, give give them a chance, give give them something. They're the weaker brethren. There was no sense in this sermon that there was anything such a thing as the weaker brethren. And I, 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 even if I agreed with what the person was saying, and I agreed in quite a bit with, obviously in relation to the ordination of women and the women in the episcopacy. But I thought to myself, this is so extreme. There's, this, is a, this is an advocacy position, not a reconciling position. And it's just so different than what I was always taught a bishop was supposed to be. So in a way, you want to say, well, what can we do? I mean, if it's that far removed from what we were taught, can we do anything? Well, obviously not, because this, this is the highest levels. Uh, and so you, 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 instead of getting angry about it, don't get angry about it. There's a plague on both their houses. The conservatives got angular, and I know about that. And, and reactive, and yet the other group on the left gave no quarter, gave absolutely no concessions, had no a ceasefire without conditions, you know, uh, it was only the thing they would give, but no conditions, no preconditions, and therefore um, no wonder it ended as it did. So um, if I start thinking about that, well, the answer is uh, then don't think about it. You may say, well, that's weak, that's weak position. Actually, I think it's a wise position, and I'm going to say why I think it's a wise position. You may say, well, th- th- that's just what, what you know, you're, you're saying go out into the desert. Well, I wonder. I really wonder. And then there was just one other. Uh, recently, I was um, involved in a, a, a rejection of something that I'd done in an academic uh, 
in an academic setting, and I was surprised, uh, taken by surprise by a certain thing that happened, and uh, I got quite upset. I said, well, this is the way it has always been. You know, I've always been on the margins. I've always been an independent scholar. What is the word Mary was saying? You, you, you're on the margin, you're in the, in, you're in the inside, you're on the margins of the inside. I've been on the margins of the inside. Um, and it sort of brought home a feeling of rejection I'd had, and then I got angry and resentful, you know, and you go back all the different times when you should have been given such and such a post, or you should have been given such and such a hearing or such and such a lectureship or something, and it never happened. And then you get, well, the answer is not to engage because I can't control it. My own, I don't know about you, but my own sense of resentment begins very, very big and I just can't do it. And so I stop. And um, it it, it defeats me. You have to admit defeat. I admit defeat. And therefore, um, the far better to uh, retreat under cover of darkness and maybe fight another day. But go quickly out, leave quickly, and uh, rethink the whole thing. Rethink the whole thing about your attachment to a certain political view or not in the Middle East. Rethink your whole thing about your own church politics background and struggles. Rethink you were wrong in the first place to even get involved. What did it get you? Uh, Or an academic uh, type of thing or regarding um, um, immigration reform. What what can your resentment on either side, on any side, get you? These are things that are ultimately uh, out of your hands in any real way. It might be that down the line you were given, like St. Benedict of Nursia, some kind of blueprint for the recovering lost Roman Empire that actually did something for Italy, but you're not there and uh, first uh, retreat and regroup. And that is really what I think Heard was saying. I could give you another example. I was dealing with a certain form of free church evangelicalism recently, again, in regard to a writing project. And um, I know the world fairly well, but I've never been really of it, didn't grow up in it. And reached an absolute impasse in relationship to a manuscript. Uh, the kind of concerns that the other group was having, that they, they wanted me to say things that I simply don't like to make explicit. I don't believe in making things didactic and explicit. On the other hand, they would say, well, then why do it if you're not really an advocate for the kingdom of God? And so I see it their way too. But I realized, you know, I'm not going to change these people. Um, and uh, I could I could send them something that they want, but um, unless they really want it. You know, have you ever – remember that song by Bob Dylan that Aaron Neville uh, – I think it's called Saving Grace. It's a wonderful song by Bob Dylan and Aaron Neville sang a cover of it. I've quoted it once. Wherever I am welcome is where I'll be. You know, you can't knock down a door where you're not welcome, whether it's academic, whether it's church-wise, whether it's uh, ideological, whether it's political. It's the old thing. You, you, you can't get into a place where you're not welcome. However, if you are welcome and if they want you, they'll open every single door. I used to tell that to people in the ministry application process for calls. Um, don't tell, uh, start telling a search committee that's considering interviewing you what your various financial requirements are or the requirements as far as what school district you can live in or what kind of house you can have or what sort of um, extra, what sort of rectory they have. Don't, don't lay down any conditions. They haven't decided they want you. If after they interview you and they hear you out and they get to know you, they like you, they really want you, then at that point you can say your side of what you would like to have them do for you and your family. And then very often they'll do it and they'll do it willingly and actually delightedly. But if you, um, if you're not, don't bat down a door that isn't been opened. And of course the story of my life is trying to, um, have, haven't you done this? I mean, you do the relationship times, you know, if she doesn't like you, if you're a man and you want, you're interested in a 
girl or a woman over there that you like. If she doesn't like you, you, you can't even, you can't grow a different head. You know, you can't, uh, you can't have a different, uh, it, it, you can't change your name. Uh, you can't win an award. You can't win a, win a, the hurdle, 300, 100 yard hurdles. If she doesn't like you, forget it. Now she may change at some point, but that's in her, her, that's in her, um, Park. You, 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 you cannot force any result. You can only respond to when a door or a light is open slash green, and that's what I'm trying to say. So I've learned that the thing to do is to um, opt out of all these matters while keeping the door open if something should change on their end. Now, I want to say one other thing uh, before I play an extended cut. What I have been uh, finding is a real way forward in recent um, uh um, weeks uh, during this kind of uh, pause to PZ's podcast, and I've been on the road a great deal. I've been out of town, and I continue to be on the road a lot. Uh, but um, what I have found is that the one thing you can do is—it's going to sound. This is going to sound really lame, but I speak as one who believes what I'm saying, is convinced of it. If you really feel, if you feel. And allow yourself to really feel whatever it is that you actually are concerned about. Um, if, if you've opted out of all these ideological struggles, which just produce kind of an intellectual frenzied reactivity and anger, men are very prone to this. You know, they give rants to their poor, long-suffering wives about this, that, and the other thing. I mean, my dad used to read the Washington Post every morning, very early in the morning. Uh, he was not exactly retired, but he was, did a lot of work at home. And then he'd just rant about this, that, and the other thing for the rest of the morning. My poor mother, my poor self, about whatever it was that he didn't like that the Washington Post had said, reported or underlined. And um, so, you know, what a way to start the day. Uh, well, men, I find, are quite um, vulnerable, especially older men like myself or men who are getting older. But um, you, you, you don't want that. Uh, what, what, what I have seen is the uh, prof- amazing ability to feel and the power of breaking up log jams that can come when a person can really feel in an unmediated and actually bodily way all the various inner drives that are causing these um, displaced resentments in current uh, circumstances, whatever they may be. They may have to do with money or houses or uh, some grievance you have in your most personal area of life, whatever that is, you, you got the wrong doctor, you got a wrong diagnosis, you you had to pay a great deal more money on a repair than you found out later it was worth, you bought the wrong car, all that. Um, you, you, the feeling of it is what really heals. And I'm going to give you an example, and I'm going to play you a fairly long uh, piece, which you can listen to or not. The Why I love Burton Cummings, why I love Burton Cummings uh, so very um, – personally, is that this writer, this lyricist and this song writer and performer, somehow along the way, um, in a way that I'm sure was not sub-rational or beyond kind of words, um, was able to express in his songs feelings without any kind of filter. And the feelings of the filter is um, creates uh, in perhaps half to two-thirds of his songs, something happens in the songs. Uh, and it's not about uh, an idea. It's about a feeling that comes into it that some way, this is aligned with Burton Cummings' sometimes slightly out-of-kilter lines or an out-of-kilter word or an out of some, uh, something poetically that seems a little bit 
odd, let's or eccentric, uh, from a standpoint of the meter or the scan, and yet it's it's the underside of a great gift, and the gift is to say what he feels, and to say it in such a way that is laconic. And uh, seldom, it's not like Highway 51, Revis- Highway 51 Revisited, it's laconic. And yet there's so much emotion, uh, as I've talked about his songs, that it hits you between the eyes. And I was recently, um, was uh, actually uh, decided to um, see Burton Cummings in his native land. I'd seen him in New York because I'm a New Yorker uh, by adoption. No, not by adoption. Um, I was born and reared in New York, but I heard him in New York where I was, and that was great. But then I decided to sort of see what it was like on his own soil, as John Zoll said. uh, Dad, seeing Burton Cummings on Canadian soil would be like taking communion in Gethsemane. You've got to go. So I and a friend went up there, and we heard him in far, far western Ontario. For us, it was a very long trip. And um, there was so much emotion and so much power and so much uh, abreaction going on, not only in the songs primarily, but you could see it all around you in the very large crowd that turned out to hear this 66, almost 67-year-old singer. And it was unbelievable. I mean, the band was great and all that, and I'm going to play it to you in a minute, but my golly, was it powerful. And that's, um, I felt on the 26th of July, as I was about 20 feet from him, and then I talked to him afterwards, that I was receiving a kind of divine... um, what is the word I want to say? Uh, inspiration that didn't have any um, clothes on it. Uh, there, there was nothing to hide it. There was nothing to, to, to armor it. There was no defense to it. And the, and the power of the emotion knocked me flat. Well, that is the one thing I can say. Uh, if I opt out of one thing, I don't opt out of the need to feel. And what did we say? Someone, a wonderful man in Denver said, feel to heal. So I guess I want to conclude the podcast by saying, while I am counseling and opting out of any numbers of situations which you both have no relationship to concretely and if you do it's only one of defeat and tremendous potential anger resentment and rage and uh, uh, this causes strokes you know causes heart attacks and strokes and cancer uh rather opt out consider opting out for now uh, but feel to heal and the concluding word of this podcast is a lengthy Uh, song by uh, Burton Cummings. Um, And I have to tell you quickly what it is. It's Break It to Them Gently, which is a song he wrote about a young fellow who is on the lam from the law. He's on the run. A young fellow's on the run with a gun from the law. He's a fugitive, and he's asking someone to call his family to say he won't be coming home. And it's a very emotional song, and it's sung well. But listen... After about five minutes, the song ends and moves into kind of a gospel. You'll see it. There's a gospel chorus. Roll it over, roll it over, roll her over, roll her over. You'll see that. And there's a turning into the song. And Burton Cummings begins to sing with his other vocalist. I think his name is Nico Sinopoli. Burton Cummings talks about the power of music to affect him. And then he has a a statement about his head, his heart, and his heart, his head. Listen, if you, even if you get bored, listen enough to where Burton Cummings starts singing about his head and his heart. His head, his heart. And then you have the electrical moment. And it was at that moment when he was performing this, and this is a live performance. You're hearing it exactly as I heard it uh, two weeks ago. Listen to it. And take it in, because that that moment, I turned to the fellow who was uh, with me, my friend, and my friend turned to me, and our eyes met, and we said, good God, this is an abreactive moment of the highest intensity. Thank you so much for listening, and it's great to be back.
Oh, oh. 